Within organizations, you know, proximity and distance and whatnot, to me, has no difference in terms of shaping culture or the ability to feel that you belong to something. I think that so much of it is management style and how do you organize people together. Welcome to the Work Podcast, brought to you by Open Assembly. I'm John Windsor, and today I'm with Kirsten Hammerberg. Kirsten is the Global Vice President of Brand Innovation for the creative agency Sid Lee where she leads global business and experience design with a focus on brand innovation. She has authored growth visions and designed cultural programs that mobilize employees and has found ways to bring community and people into the heart of business design. How are you doing today, Kristen? Very well. Thank you for having me. I am so excited for today. Every time when we were starting CTW, I was telling this before the podcast started, like every time you spoke, I was like, oh my God. the smartest person I've ever met. So I'm just so inspired. Thank you so much for being on the call. And and thanks for being here to share some of your wisdom. You know, you and I have a kind of common background and that we worked in the ad brand space. And I still so love that space. I just miss it. And so it's great to talk to a fellow strategist. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll do it quickly. So I guess now for well over 15 years, I've been kind of moving around, we'll call creative professional services. I started my career more in advertising, independent, small shop. And another thing we have in common is that I also had a period of time at Havas. You did? Um, Yeah, I did. I did in the early days. In In Canada? Canada, Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in uh, communication strategy. And then I went more into brand consulting, And I actually ended up leaving kind of the quote unquote agency world for about a decade when I realized that I loved the power of creativity. I loved the magic of, you know, communications and brand, but I didn't love the products that we were selling. Yeah, exactly. So I, I took a stint and I had the great fortune to be able to get in at the ground floor of an innovation consulting firm that was headquartered again in Toronto. We grew it to a global business, and I had the fortune of being a lead strategist there through to us selling to uh, Cognizant Digital Business. Wow. So spent a little bit of time you know, within the organization that I was at for Cognizant, and then went back to Sidley, which was a place that I had started my career earlier, wow. around how do we really formalize building out brand innovation, and, and what yeah. does that mean? That's so awesome, because I feel like... My experience, when I did the deal to merge Radar with Crispin, and then Crispin kind of took on this huge run, you know, I was trying to do that product innovation. I wrote that book, Baked In, and I was really trying to figure out, like, how do we come up with the same strategy that powers both the brand and the product and this alignment, right? But unfortunately, at the time, Crispin was growing so much and so much creatively, and we were making so much money from the creative side of things nobody had the patience to do the product innovation stuff, to do the strategy, right? To do the business strategy, right? So there was kind of this addictive, almost like, I hate to say it, cocaine feel, like everything's like, you know, the latest, greatest, like what's the coolest new spot on TV or the big digital hit. And the product and the business strategy was like, yeah, yeah, you guys do your thing. You know, we'll be over here making the money, you know, and he's like, ugh. So how, how have you resolved that? Because I think you probably have suffered the same thing, right? I mean, Sidley's an amazing creative shop, although, you know, the context of what advertising has changed a lot, right? So 
how have you resolved that kind of bigger strategy with a capital S for business strategy, right? And then kind of the eye candy hot thing over here. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And I feel like there's many ways to answer it. And one of the fundamental inputs to that is, I think, time and maturity. I feel that for a lot of organizations in the beginning, right, as you said, advertising was this amazing mechanism to sell products and start to create a point of difference. And then all the ads started to look the same and sound the same. Yeah. So then people started to realize, okay, maybe we need to start changing the product in and of itself. And then, you know, you change the product and then all the products are the same. So then maybe it's experience and then experience kind of went to, wow, maybe we actually need to start changing who we are as a business. And I feel like it's all been a quest and a search for distinction and standing out. And we always want to take the easy route, but I feel like I've been along a couple of the curves of maturity around, you know, we can't take the easy route out anymore. Consumers are getting smarter. And I think a responsibility for business leaders too, around uh, the products and the services. And really now I'm seeing, you know, this appetite towards a merger between creativity and, you know, service design or product design and innovation fundamentally and bringing those together. Because again, I feel that product design with the lens of brand and brand thinking kind of gives product and experience a point of view that you lack when you just kind of do it from a pure product or experience design perspective. Yeah. And I, we used to always say that creativity was the killer business application, right? It's like when you have creativity and you can use that in a business strategy, it's just so amazing, right? So applying that. So it's really cool to see. So what are you doing that's really interesting to you right now? I mean, you've got such a global remit and doing such really cool work. What's really turning you on? I and mean, what, where do you see the world going kind of in the post-COVID pandemic era? Yeah, so the work that we're focused on right now and the, the group that I'm, I'm leading is really around kind of, you know, piggybacking on, on the last point that you talked about, how do we use brand and creativity to mobilize and accelerate transformation? Mm-hmm. So I find that, you know, we're not necessarily coming in and there's more and more appetite and you're sitting down at conversations, business leaders recognize change needs to happen through and through. Mm-hmm. And that can be as it relates to, you know, their people strategy or their operational strategy or, you know, any multifaceted number of things that they're looking at that needs to be changed. And really, you know, there was good momentum and stall. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of questions around, you know, why is that happening? And probably similar to you and a lot of people who work in, in the creative realm, so much of that belief stems from culture and what is the meaning of culture within an organization and how do you make sure that your transformation and your vision for transformation isn't disconnected in terms of who you are and the values that you have and the culture that you currently are in and how do you appreciate and understand that and kind of bring the power of brand and belonging and participation and turn that on internally in order to start kind of accelerating some of the changes that you hope to see. So across the board, I mean, in terms of the industries and whatnot that we're working in, it could be anything from, you know, conferences, events, and entertainment through to healthcare. So the categories are broad and the locations may be broad, but really kind of solving for some of these core pieces, which is how do we help to accelerate and make change and transformation tangible and real to kickstart organizational progress. I love that. And let's dive in a little bit to culture because I, I find that such an interesting question. One of the things that everybody says is that, oh, this whole remote work, kind of open talent really hurts the culture of companies. And now I was on with Paul Livko, who's the CTO and, and CXO of, of Wellmark, which is a big healthcare company in the United States. And 
his point was companies have tons of cultures. The fact is for a global business, in their technology departments, 35% of their workforce is outsourced. So the idea that, you know, there's one culture because they have multiple offices and all those offices have their own cultures. So the idea that he was throwing out is like, because people are remote and because there's a, more of a tendency to use outsourcing and open talent as an opportunity, leaders have to accept that there are multiple cultures going on, you know, using inspiration and using a, a broad framework to make sure that it's consistent but allowing for that variance. The other thing that he came up with too, and I'd love your reaction too, is he's like, everybody says that you, know, you can't really collaborate with open talent, like collaboration gets killed. And, and his point is, is like, we've got seven offices and we've done really well. Like, what's the difference, right? If it's a one person office at home or if it's a 10 person office or a hundred person office across the street, the digital tools are just starting to be created to allow for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I have the great opportunity and privilege to be able to have access to internet and participate in really rich conversations and be part of interesting communities. I would say that even during the pandemic, like we met at that period of time and I feel more kind of connected and stimulated by certain groups of people that, you know, perhaps before I never would have connected to. So from like Mm -hmm. a cultural standpoint within organizations, I agree, which is you know, proximity and distance and whatnot, to me, has no difference in terms of shaping culture or the ability to feel that you belong to something. I think that so much of it is management style and how do you organize people together? And I'm not talking about organization from like a project management and tasks and responsibility standpoint, but really, you know, the power to be able to define problems in an inspirational way to use narrative as a way to like mobilize people around cultures and visions of the future so that people can come together and collaborate and bring their unique expertise in new ways to build new cultures or whatnot. So I feel like there is, yes, there's like kind of organizational culture, but there's microcultures that may exist around certain problem sets that people are working together on, et cetera. And when those are strong, I feel like there's no barriers to be able to participate. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of the things I always say when I own women's sports and fitness is that my job as a leader is to set the dinner table, right? It's to set the dinner table and invite really, really interesting people to the dinner table. And then, you know, this collective community comes around and I host the party or the conversation in the pages of the magazine. And then culture just starts to happen, right? Because people make these interesting connections. They find things that they like the same or they want to debate things and it's a safe place to debate. And, you know, I, I think you can see that in great brands. Like, I mean, my, my favorite always is Patagonia just because I know you've on. And I love the fact that you can't really draw a line between their customer and their employee, right? That it's like, they look the same, they feel the same, they have the same values. It's one big crazy family that's all dedicated to doing good things. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's, personally, one of the components right now with the work that we're doing that I find the most exciting, and it's not everywhere, but the signals around leaders who really recognize that their employees aren't a captive audience, right. that you know your employees are your biggest allies. And how do you bring the investment that you're putting out into the world to try to mobilize adoption of your brand or your product internally first, and right. really turn your employees into allies who create the stories 
right. the true stories of you know your your organization and the culture that then gets released to the world. So it's less of an advertising engine of making up fictional stories, but I really right. love more of this editorial and journalistic perspective yeah. that we're starting to see come forward that's really embedded because of the way that that organization is behaving or how it's working with employees or unlocking the capabilities of employees in new ways is really interesting and fascinating to be a part of. Yeah, I love that. One of the things I love about Steve Rader is he, you know, from NASA, he can be pretty provocative. And he said the other day on a call, the CTW call, he's like, yeah, W2 employment is kind of, it's almost slavery in some situations. It's like, there's this compliant nature of like, we're going to hold the reins really tight. We don't really trust you. We're going to, you know, monitor everything you do on a computer. You got to be in, you know, in your seat by this time. You can't leave till then. It's like, it's about good work. So we all inspire each other to do good work and forget about all the holding the boundaries in such a tight way because we don't trust you because that old system really is reliant on this lack of trust, right? And, and I think that's super interesting to me in the context of this new open talent world that you and I've been having this conversation for a year or so. It's like, I found at least in the organization in an OA as we've grown, there's so many people that don't work for me or they're in different organizations, yet we're doing really good work together. It's because it's really important for each other for the overall culture. And I find that interesting, right? When we're liberated from, I gotta have this compliant relationship, magical things can happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. I was talking to Tony Bond, who's the, yeah, I'm going to get this wrong, but head of innovation and inclusion at Great Places to Work recently. And we were, we were having a conversation around the role of creativity and innovation within internal organizations. And, you know, one of the questions that we were asking was, you know, what is that common denominator for all of the organizations that are ranking at the top? And it was trust. It was, you can't have a creative organization. You can't, drive the efficiency and the culture and all of the things without just that basics of trust. And how do these leaders essentially use their power to share power as a way to really mobilize and organize people in a new way that taps into their abilities and welcomes that participation so much less like it's not executives huddling around problems in a closed way, but so much, how do we look at the edges and the new places within the organization, the people who are closest to the source of those problems to really start finding ways to make it possible to overcome them and then feed that back up. And it does take a special leader, right, in terms of being able to trust and and let go. But yeah, absolutely how much stronger the outcomes are is unbelievable. Yeah, I love that. Let's dive into the future of work. What are you seeing in the context of the latest disruption? I mean, you're, you're in the middle of kind of brand and culture and business strategy, and there's so many things going on. People are trying to figure out this new hybrid thing and how do we use open talent and where do the lines blur? What's coming to mind for you? What are you seeing? Yeah. So I can share my perspective on it, which I know is a little bit different, right, than the rest of the community that may be really focused on open talent models and whatnot. In the work that we're doing and what I find I'm spending a lot of time working through and figuring out and being inspired by are how organizations are coming together to work together in new ways. So it's not necessarily kind of individual talent partnering, be it, you know, employees or, or open talent models, et cetera. 
but how new just fundamental companies and partnerships, public and private coming together to solve problems because we're all being faced with challenges that are bigger than any one institution or person or department can solve. For me and individually, that's really kind of the work that I'm seeing. So when I speak of that, it's not only kind of public to private or just two organizations that maybe at one point saw themselves as competitors saying, hey, we're all up against the same problem. How may we come together and start solving this collectively? But then even from anecdotal and personal experience, you know, Sid Lee belongs to Q Collective, which is an amazing kind of holding company with IDEO and SY Partners and et cetera. And looking for opportunities to unite across that collective as well. So very much kind of breaking down the, the structures of kind of working in one place or one space or seeing yourself in kind of one role, but more driven by, you know, what is it that I'm trying to accomplish or what are these individual organizations trying to accomplish or solve? And then who are the new partners that you can, you know, work with in order to get that done? And that's really breaking models and, and working together in new ways. But more from almost like an outcomes focus right, for sure. versus like, let's start by thinking through how do we need to redesign our company versus what are we trying to accomplish? Yeah. And then how do we need to get there? Well, it's that plus it feels like there's a lack of systems intelligence, right? Because what an amazing thing if you could go out to the community of Q and find somebody who has an incredibly interesting point of view to be able to answer a question you didn't even know was possible, right? Like exactly. possibilities. And so, but it's, it's more like what gets in the way of that effort is like, I don't even know where to start. Like, how do I even get that word out? Like the mechanisms we have of email and texting and Slack just aren't going to bubble up those things, right? That's yeah. To me, that's really, really important because I, I agree. I mean, I think the biggest opportunity, at least what we've seen at NASA with their NASA at work platform, where they've got a lot of energy, it's really was digitally connected in their, their internal teams with their contractors to create this thing called NASA at work so that when somebody's about ready to launch a project, instead of spending the investment money to say, hey, I'm about ready to do this, here's the brief. Anybody have any technology they've thought about in the last couple of years to solve this? And over and over, we see like somebody else in a really non-connected way say, oh, that kind of sounds like... Or that kind of, you know, feels like, and all of a sudden there's the solve that really catches the speed up. So I, I totally agree with you trying to break down those organizational barriers. And it feels to me that, I mean, I would love to your, your sense of this, because this is my struggle at Havas when we try to create Havas crowd, was that I think we got the incentives wrong because we didn't incentivize the middle-level managers that are so focused on the profitability of a unit right? I mean, it was easy. Like C-level is like, yes, let's do it. Lowest level people are like, give me bigger problems to figure out. Yeah. Mid-level is like, yeah, but those people work for me. And I've got this vision of where I want to take them. And if they start working for somebody else in IDEO versus at Sid Lee, what's that do for me? Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, for most things, when it comes to change, getting that middle layer energized and connected in the right way early is really, really important. It goes back to, I think, some of the comments that we were making, which is how do you design these solutions in participation with the right people? And how do we make sure that our vision for what we think that is doesn't just live at a C-suite level and then get deployed, but rather how do we understand what's needed by, as you said, that, that middle management group or how that incentive structure is working to make sure that this is aligned with that or empowering that? 
I feel that so often <laughs> a, a lot of my job can simply be going into an organization that's piled on a hundred new priorities on top of everyone's existing priorities and then be right. surprised that no one's able to move forward. But there's big questions around what do we need to let go in order yeah, to be able to move sure. forward sure. and being able to kind of cut the losses to step forward is so important and it's not easy to do, but it takes discipline. And I think that that's so often what's happening with that middle management layer, which is it can't just be one more thing that's added on the table. What else is going to go if we want to be inspired to work in new ways? Yeah. I think there's something deeper there and I'd love to get your perspective on Tushman and myself and Kareem did a retrospective with David. We thought that we got the incentives wrong, but I think really what we got wrong was the identity what I mean by that is I can only imagine, right? It's like somebody who's the chief creative officer of the Istanbul office of Havas, who's been there 25 years. It took 20 years before he got to work on a global brief out of Paris. And then all of a sudden we have this digital tool that a Parisian strategist puts, you know, the, the latest Peugeot brief onto the digital platform. And some young hot guy that's been in the Istanbul office for two months, answers it and wins a bunch of money and has this recognition of like affecting this global brand. And the CEO or the CCO in Istanbul is like, wait a second, like that took me 20 years to do. Like yeah. that, what was I doing? It really throws their, their identity off. And so it feels to me this change, right? This digital transformation, we have to create safe spaces for transformation, right? I don't know with the identity side of things. I don't know if you have any reaction to that. I couldn't agree more. I think that so often the recognition going back to that idea of culture and recognizing exactly the identity of the people that you're trying to onboard is so crucial if you want to be able to make change happen. And how do you make sure that it doesn't come across as a threat, but rather an enablement to where people want to go? And, you know, we've worked with different organizations and I know that we've talked a little bit about and, um, you know, you've talked respectively with some of my colleagues around, you know, brand led transformation and the role that that may be able to play, et cetera. And the reason why I bring it up here is that often that middle kind of management level or even just us as, you know, anyone as an individual has a certain identity that is perhaps, you know, for the best brands connected to, you know, the ultimate vision or a purpose of what that brand's all about. And then all of a sudden there's a transformation vision or change that comes in sideways and kind of blows that all up. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, speaking about an example is someone that may be working within the realm of healthcare or pharma that's very much there because of patient centricity and care is now being kind of talked about, you need to become a a technologist. So, but that's not the business that I'm in. So I think that, you know, really being able to contextualize change and transformation and the adoption of new tools into the ultimate kind of identity and vision of why someone may be there to begin with is so important. Otherwise, that that rupture is very real and very threatening. It was interesting. I was speaking with you know one of my clients and they were talking about the number of complaints from an HR standpoint that went up during a transformation because all of a sudden, certain generations felt very threatened because of preference for younger talent. And so Yes, I couldn't agree more with the idea of understanding identity and, and using transformation as a moment in time to enable people with new tools versus kind of challenge the core of why they're there to begin with. As I'm working on this book, one of the things I'm really intrigued with is this idea that, you know, not only is there a 150 million person, I, you've probably read those numbers, right? But digital employees or talent that companies need, there's a shortfall by 2025. Currently, there's a shortfall of 41 million by 2025, 150 million 
uh, person gap between the jobs that are needed to be done and then the talent that can do it in the traditional format of full-time jobs. Right. That, that's one issue, right? For everybody, because everybody's trying to digitally transform themselves. But I think the more intriguing issue is that this incoming workforce, they're actually on-demand millennials, like they're on-demand consumers, right? And, and we were talking about this this morning, I was talking about it with a client, both of us have teenagers and we were saying, you know, when we wanted to go on a date or even go to a movie, We'd say, wow, what's playing on Saturday night? Let's go to the 7.30 movie. You know, if my kids are like, hey, have you watched that movie? He's like, oh, let me pick up my phone. Oh, I'm going to watch it right now, right? So they're, they live in this on-demand world where they can get anything and everything right now. And work has to, and, and organizations have to realize that that's how they want to work too. Like they're super psyched to get the project and do the project, but they're not going to sit around and do a bunch of meetings and anticipate that you start working next week and all those kinds of things. So the way that this mindset is going to be really interesting to see going from planning and, and talent focused to very much task focused. Here's a task. Who wants to do it? Oh, thanks for a good job. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's really interesting in, in terms of having some conversations with clients and organizations around employer brands and attracting that kind of next generation of talent, specifically when we're talking about these digital kind of workers that are going to be so paramount to the future of an organization. And very much when we talk about some of that, you know, star talent, what they're motivated by, as you said, are these projects and these projects with impact. And specifically, we were talking about, you know, like supply chain reinvention and all the rest of it as a way to really accelerate responsible transformation within organizations and such an amazing job to be able to step into. But there absolutely is, or it seems that psychology of, I want to come on board to have access to a certain project or program, but what my relationship to the organization may be after that, very questionable. So again, this idea of like retention becomes of primary importance in order to continue to satisfy the thirst and, and the purpose that's driven within these jobs. Yeah. So where do you think this whole remote hybrid thing is going to end? What's your vision on that? I'm sure you're getting that question a ton from your clients. Yeah, I mean, and I don't at all have the answer. And I think it's anyone's guess. I can share kind of my personal opinion on that based on conversations I've been in and and what I see. I definitely think that it's not one size fits all. So I even feel that different industries are, you know what I mean? Like I I, working within the creative world, I think has a certain perspective, which I know is very different perhaps than like lawyers or within finance, et cetera. So it's definitely not blanket statement whatsoever. But I do see more and more organizations adopting, you know, that hybrid philosophy. Right. But important, I think, within that, it's really interesting to me that we, even the definition of, you know, we're talking about hybrid work versus just better work. Yeah, exactly. And better work just means that you're going to be able to do things using the tools you need when you need them. And right. sometimes that means you have to be home or sometimes that may mean you need to be here or sometimes that means you need to be with a client. But to me, it's less about the model itself and more about what is our vision of the future of work. And if we're talking about a more inspired, a more trustworthy place to, to work, a more creative culture so that we can really use our, our, our mental capacity to lean into these big problems, it's about having all of those tools. And it's not about the model. It's about kind of the culture and the outcome. Yeah. It was interesting because I was talking to an exec at a healthcare company and he, he laid out this scenario, which I thought was a really great perspective. He's based in Des Moines, Iowa. 
And so he said, I just tried to hire a software engineer, really talented woman, really psyched to have her on board. My mindset was kind of COVID, pre-COVID. So I offered her $90,000, but you know, because we're one day a week have to be in the office. So my recruiting pool is the 1.2 million people that are in the Des Moines area. And she was pretty excited about it. And then a week later, I get a call back from her and saying, oh, a Silicon Valley software company just offered her $115,000 plus $15,000 bonus and 100% remote so she can live in Des Moines and work in Silicon Valley. And he's like, the Silicon Valley company has an employment pool of 159 million people in the US and I'm not going to be able to compete anymore. I have to raise all my salaries and I have to be 100% remote for my tech team because yeah. I, won't, I won't be able to, like somebody's playing 100% remote and higher dollars in Silicon Valley kind of prices, it's going to raise everybody, right? Because all of a sudden, this you know Silicon Valley firm is picking things out of the choice place like Des Moines, Iowa, where this company is the biggest and the strongest tech company in that region is no longer relevant. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. It is. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I know that we're having these conversations internally as an organization as well. And very much the philosophy is, where is the best talent? Let's find the best talent and we will do what needs to be done in order to create the conditions of work that are going to be good for existing teams and for them so that there's not kind of haves and have nots. Like sometimes you're in the office and that person's not accessing it. So everything that we've, that we've talked about. And I think that in those instances, when it comes to money, it can be just really hard to compete because it's like, how do you win that game? But I do think, again, it kind of goes back to, again, some of the conversations that we've had previously and and with employer brand programs is what else, like what are those soft benefits and, and access that you can provide people that helps to compete with dollars? I mean, dollars are dollars, but there are other things, cultural programs or problems to solve or different yeah. types of work models or right. connections, right? Like new communities that you can become a part of that just become so paramount and crucial, I think, today. Yeah, no, I love it. That's so very cool. My son just is doing an internship for a company. It's a startup, but it's well-funded startup. And they have a trust department. And the trust department is there to like teach the fundamentals of trust, not just internally in the company, but also with their customers and the use of data and all those things. And Charlie was like, he's 19 years old. And he's like, wow, I never thought about it. It was so cool for him to think about abstracting that instead of, you know, it's so important, but yet we don't talk about the functionality of that. And I think that's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think like trust again will be, as you said, it's funny that it's something that we have to teach so yeah. much. Like how, where did we go so wrong? I know. But it, it, I think it is back and it's something that people are paying attention to in, in a very serious way. It's not just kind of a side of desk thing, but it's really connected to corporate policy and, and practice. And that's a really positive sign. Yeah, I love it. Hey, let's jump into the open talent freelance industry. Where do you see it fitting into the ecosystem of talent and business when you look at things? And where is the future of open talent in the context of freelancing and crowdsourcing and all the passion economy stuff? Mm-hmm. So again, I'll t- I can tell you from my perspective, yeah, which yeah. again, I'm not as deep into um, No, it's the great. World. Just your perspective always is awesome. The way that I see it, I think that with the increasing support, and I know that it's up and coming and there's a lot of work being done in this space that actually like the services that are being provided, the access to benefits, the ability to be able to be paid in a certain way. I know that there's definite leaders speaking from a creative standpoint. I don't think you can have a conversation 
in this space without someone probably mentioning we are Rosie. Right. And so I think that is becoming more and more viable choice. So I think that there was a moment in time, I know from colleagues and working again within the creative world and lots of like freelancers, it was maybe not a choice. It was, there was a circumstance. This is how they had to be able to work in order to balance life and, and, and meet certain needs. I think increasingly it is an active choice and one in which I see more and more people turning to because of the systems of support that exist within open talent. So I think that open talent on its own, personally speaking, can be liberating in a lot of ways. And then in other ways, it can be isolating. And so now that there's increasing solutions out there that kind of combine both, like the best of both worlds, it's getting hard to, it's very appealing. I think that as organizations, though, continue to adopt some of the principles of open talent and kind of have the working models or employee structures that are more fluid and flexible so that being part of an organization has some of that built into it too, it also starts to get competitive. So essentially what I'm saying is it's increasingly an interesting option. It's obviously supported now more than ever from like a structural perspective, which I always thought like whenever I was kind of like dipping my toes into that world, it was what held me back. So now there's more and more appealing. But then at the same time, I think that organizations have learned a lot from open talent. And as that starts to be embedded within those cultures, there's an interesting blurring of the lines. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out for my book, you know, and it's just been such a hard question because obviously it's a big impactful thing. And I think just because I've always been in the innovation space, we look at it as solving big, hard problems. They could just acknowledge yeah. to solve big problems. What I'm realizing is that probably the simple lift, because there's all these questions, right, for organizations of like IP and compliance and security and identity and all that kind of stuff. That's really they're important issues. But I, I, my sense is what will happen is that, you know, for most organizations, 35% of their employees now are, are outsourced to the Wipros and the Accentures and, and folks like that. Yeah. And those guys, the problem is, is that companies have gone out to those guys to get more expertise, yet those guys can't even hire the expertise. And so these kind of new models like TopTal and, and Brain Trust and folks that are kind of, as much as they're open talent platforms, they're also kind of new, digitally transformed outsourcing companies. And, yeah. and my, my sense is, is that's going to be part of the adoption, right? Is like, we were trying to say crowdsourcing. In the advertising business, 10 years ago, when I was doing Victors and Spoils, it was super scary, right? Now it's starting to be like, oh, it's it's getting organized. There's structure, there's Camino, there's We Are Rosie. There are things that are happening that allow for the connection to a platform that allows me to have culture. I am a Rosie, right? Yeah. But yet the ability to have kind of flexibility and pursue my passions. If I'm a music producer, but I want to earn some money as a strategist, I have that opportunity, right? And I can really focus on my passion. So it feels like that's an interesting door, that kind of outsourcing door to say, you know, you need extra talent. Companies are in the place because of, I think, the disruption where they need to minimize fixed costs and expand variable costs, expand flexibility, right? To be able to say, oh my God, this pandemic really threw me for a loop. What's next, right? How do I make sure that my core is protected but yet I have more flexibility to really grow fast that these yeah. are kind of alternative you know, outcomes, but yet there needs to be a lot more structure and there needs to be kind of this pathway. Cause I think before, at least for me, even I'm calling myself out here was this great, fantastical, 
opportunity to really change the world, yet it wasn't really connected to organizations in any real tangible way. Yeah, and I think that's so important, right? Because it's like, there's a couple fundamental pieces in here, again, almost like from a cultural perspective to think about adoption from Mm -hmm. an organization standpoint in order to be able to make it like a systemic and an ongoing solution. The first is an organization's kind of people are its greatest assets. And how terrifying is it when you can't attract the right talent or there's not enough of that talent and all of a sudden, really what should be making you stand out more than anything, you're, you're losing, you're losing control of. And then to think that you may be quote unquote, sharing that talent with competitors or other people, well, then what makes you stand out and what makes you stand apart? Like these are very important questions, I think, for any organization to be asking. I think to to your point, which is with this structural support and just time, there is a de-risking that starts to happen around like, okay, it's a little bit less ambiguous. Other people are doing it it is successful. And as we know, we kind of need those vanity metrics in order to have the confidence for decision makers to say, okay, I think that I can, I I think that we can do this too. I also think that there's something really interesting and I don't know the data around this. And I wonder if you do, which is the age demographic for open talent. Mm -hmm. Because I do know that when I talk to a a lot of younger people, they're so enthusiastic about joining a company Mm -hmm. and being part of something. And be it like having that community and having that culture and feeling like you're really kind of participating in something. I know that was something that was important to me way back when, and I still talk to people and it's important. And one of the things that they ask is even like my team size and how much time they'll be able to spend with leaders and other people to learn and to grow. So I think that that's an interesting thing to think about too, which is where people are in their careers and when open talent becomes an interesting option as a worker And then the flip side of what we just talked about, which is at what point does it become a solution for an organization that doesn't take away that, you know, makes business sense and it doesn't start to make them feel like they're losing some of their intellectual property. I think that one of the things that needs to happen is if you have the strategy of we want the best talent, right, then that to me means that the best talent has negotiating power. Yeah. And so if you want the best talent, you have to work with the way they want to work. And so some people want to be in the office five days a week. Other people don't ever want to come to the office, but that's the connectivity. My favorite story in this kind of thinking is that when we did Victors and Spoils, there was this young kid, his name was Whit Hiller. And Whit was this crazy creative guy. And he was actually the manager of a Vespa dealership in Lexington, Kentucky. And the reason he was doing that is because he really, really wanted to be in advertising, right? But being in Lexington, he didn't have a lot of opportunities. And so he had spent like the last two years and he said he had sent out 25 emails and letters to agencies in LA and New York and not one agency had gotten back to him, right? And so one of my greatest joys at Victors and Spoils is that he actually came in and wanted to do the work. He was so passionate about it. And he won the contest to actually come up with a new tagline for Harley Davidson. No cages, the idea that there's no cars. And it expanded so big that in their parking lots, in all their offices, there was a no cages parking, right? That was like, it was, it was like a just do it, right? It was like, you can't park your cage, meaning your car <laughs> here. It's only bikes, right? Yeah. And so Wit like won like four projects in a row and did the anthemic stuff for Harley Davidson. You know, and he made about 150,000 bucks that year. But it was so exciting that all of a sudden, every big agency in the world 
wanted to work with him. And a few years later, after he had freelancing, he got really sassy. He was like, if you want to work with me, I'm in Lexington and I ain't moving. <laughs> you know, So all of a sudden, these big shops in New York and L.A. would work with him. And then, you know, he had the confidence to start his own shop and he really took off. He has a bunch of folks working for him in his own shop in Lexington. But it's one of those things where it's how do you get that adjacent talent, right? The adjacent yeah. knowledge. If you're a place-based organization, you have to have the perspective that you did to say, we're dedicated to the best talent. And if it's a, if it's a software engineer in Romania, then we're going to find them and we're going to support them. And we're going to, if they can add stuff to our team and make it better, then we're going to be open to it. And I think that's such a cool perspective, but that's a big mindset shift, right? For people. It is. It's such a big mindset shift. And I think that some organizations are there and others will kind of be, I hate this language, but like almost more forced to get there because they'll just get so left behind. And it almost goes back to the original point before the podcast, when we were chatting, which is, you know, the benefits of being home. And what like being in a familiar place does, like being close to your family and your friends and your community and having that anchoring for your creative output or your thinking. And so when an organization can nurture that and let that, you know, take place, I think you get the best out of people. I do too. I mean, I had this perspective of COVID and I'd love to get your feedback on it is that I think all those of us have the good fortune of working on a global basis, like we talked about before we started, right? This ability to kind of work on so many interesting problems around the world. My friends and my community really became global, Mm -hmm. right? And I kind of lost touch, even though I've lived in the same house for 30 years, I've lost touch with kind of my neighbors. So I was always on a plane and really deeply connected to my kids. But during COVID, we started having little neighborhood social distance cocktail hours and I've rediscovered the fact that, you know, people say that, oh, people want to come back to work for the social aspect of work. I found it just the opposite. I, I've said, oh, this is kind of rediscovering what I remember when I was a kid, that we would all get together in the neighborhood and be friends and say, just for instance, my neighbor put their dog down really sadly yesterday. And it's like, I could be there and I could be emotionally connected. And we had enough of a relationship to gain something out of for both of us to celebrate that life. And yet before COVID, I would have gotten a text somewhere on a plane saying, oh, my dog, I had to put it down. Like, oh, so sorry. Yeah. yeah just the depth of the connections. And I, and I wonder if in some weird way, the pandemic was this readjustment in the context of we're supposed to be connected to the people we live with. Like as human beings, it's part of our tribe. It's our around the campfire. That's what we know and COVID's allowed us to rediscover that, to shake hands with people and wave at them and say, you know, how are you doing as you walk down the street versus like driving by frantically on your phone and in some contract negotiations out of Berlin or something like that. So I, I wonder your feeling, if you just felt the same thing, do, do you know the people locally more? Have you felt a more connection locally than you did kind of pre-COVID because you, you've been there and feel there? And Yeah, there? I mean, I personally very much feel that I've had a bit more presence and like as much as like unstable and, and crazy as the last period of time has been being able to be home and not always being on a plane and almost feeling like you're fractured, like your head and your body are always like different places and spaces and yes, showing up and having those, you know, rather than commuting to an office, a neighborhood walk and being able to just like see those same people every morning, very much so. And it's, it's interesting. We, one of my 
appliance is a huge global engineering firm. And they build buildings and bridges and whatnot, and also planned communities. And we were working on a program with them recently around how our places, the places that we are in, is very much part of our future healthcare. And the place that you're in and what you have access to and the community you have and the connections you have is such a source of well-being. Right. And being able to work and live in proximity to one another, I think, allows us to just show up in those spaces more fully. Oh, man, I love that. And I so love the conversations with you. I, I could go on forever. Thanks so much for taking the time and talking. And I think this is probably a good time to end it here because that's great stuff. Thanks Absolutely. so much for being here and being connected. And let's definitely make some time to continue the conversation. I've really missed you over the last six months and no. your inspiration. No, no, don't feel guilty. It's always like, where's Kirsten? I, she's my sense of inspiration. I could always like, the thing that always blew me away that the height of CTW last year was like, when things were going crazy and I was really lost, I would be like on my Zoom gallery set looking for my familiar faces. Well, like, who can pull this out of the fire? Oh, there's Kirsten. Yay, Kirsten. What do you think? And you always had the perfect answer at the perfect time to like get things back on track and, and open and more inspiring. So I really am grateful for that and this conversation as well. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I've very much missed being part of those discussions in the last little while. And I want to get back to it. You're always I mean, welcome. Super kind words very kind words and leaving with a very stimulated mind and, and great discussion. It was really good to reconnect. Well, thanks again. 